You're working that 12-hour shift in an emergency department, and no one is coming to see that unfunded acute abdomen. Or maybe you have a 7 a.m. OR case, and the ER is calling you at 1 a.m. Are surgicalists the new answer? I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining us today to discuss the role of the surgicalist, rhymes with hospitalist, is Dr. John McConnell, who has his Ph.D. from Stanford University, but he's also an associate professor of emergency medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. He has been working on a committee formed by the Institute of Medicine to solve the on-call crisis in Palm Beach County. Dr. McConnell, welcome to ReachMD. Hi, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So what is your role in the Department of Emergency Medicine? How did you get involved in all this? Well, I took a typical academic route, and I got my PhD in an economics program at Stanford and then was looking for academic jobs and had been in the Portland area before and saw the department advertising for something that was probably more like an epidemiologist, but I talked my way into it and turned out to be a lot of interesting issues around economics and emergency medicine, so it's been a good fit. How widespread is this problem with obtaining subspecialty coverage? It's pretty widespread. You know, we had good survey data from 2005 and 2006 that said about 40 to 50 percent of hospitals were paying stipends. This was sort of a intensive study in Oregon and then some sort of national survey data of all hospitals. said maybe 40 to 50 percent of all hospitals were paying stipends, which is one indicator of, of hospitals having difficulty with the specialists. There's a more recent study that looked at about 11 communities across the U.S. and looked at how many of them were employing specialists. And they found that of 11 communities they looked at, that eight of them were employing specialists. So it's fairly widespread and seems to be increasing over time. Now, can I ask you, when you say they're paying stipends, this is a small or a medium-sized hospital, and are they paying, for instance, ENT or anybody who won't take call regularly, or are we gearing this toward the surgical role? The median stipend that we found in 2005 was about $1,000 per night. These were being paid to all sorts of specialties. The most common specialties were orthopedics, neurosurgery, and general surgery, but we found it for ENT for hand surgeons, for other subspecialties, less common, I guess, for psychiatric services, less common for primary care, but a lot going on with surgical specialties and related specialties. What types of hospitals are hardest hit? Years ago, I was moonlighting in a very small hospital, and they couldn't get coverage for plastics, for trauma, for anything. But does it also affect medium-sized hospitals? It really is affecting all the hospitals, and sort of the main difference is just sort of how they can respond. And what's happening with the big hospitals is that they are generally just spending more. They're opting to continue coverage, but to pay a lot in terms of stipends or in terms of employing specialists. The smaller hospitals, they often are just going without call, and then the medium hospitals are sort of faced with a dilemma between, do I pay stipends, do I try to employ specialists, or do I drop 24-7 coverage? And, you know, one hospital here in Oregon, they had a very difficult decision that they were weighing, and they may still be weighing it, which was, do we continue to pay between half a million and a million dollars a year to maintain coverage for certain specialists, or do we drop our accreditation from a level two to a level three trauma center? Now, why has this been allowed to happen? It's not new. No, it's not new. And, you know, I think there's a couple things. And so some of what it is has been a change in the voluntary medical staff model. And kind of the, the old days, taking emergency call was an accepted responsibility of medical staff. And it wasn't always something that people looked forward to. There was a lot of things that made this unattractive, late night call, not getting paid by somebody without insurance, a lot of concerns about lawsuits with high-risk emergency patients. And those things were always there. But I think there's a few things that have changed the dynamic very recently. And 
One of those is sort of the way that physicians practice, and there's a lot of opportunities now to have a successful surgical practice that is not related to the hospital. So you could practice in a day surgery or ambulatory surgery center and have a successful practice and not have to deal with a big hospital and with emergency department patients. And so there's an ability to take the practice outside of the hospital and so that you're not beholden to the hospital. The second is a change in the EMTALA interpretation in 2003, and EMTALA is the federal law that mandates that all hospitals accept patients regardless of their ability to pay and stabilize them before discharging them. And the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, who oversees Medicare and EMTALA, they sort of made some changes in hospital coverage. And these are complicated, and I think the intention was good, but in the end, what they said was they essentially made it clear that it would be up to each hospital to adopt its own reasonable coverage standards, and there would be no minimum requirement for frequency of call coverage or things like that. And after the publication of these regulations, a lot of hospitals added partial call coverage for formulas and sort of it kind of opened things up so that there's a lot more push for changes in how hospitals cover their emergency call. So that means it's up to their discretion. Some days they may have ENT coverage and some days they may not? Yes, So is it all about reimbursement? No, it's really about lifestyle too, correct? Well, yeah, I think it really is. And I think, you know, especially for some of these hospitals in the smaller areas, what they've got is they've got maybe two specialists, you know, two general surgeons or two obstetricians or or something like that. They don't have a great way of getting those physicians to take call every other night. That's what it would take if you only had two specialists in your area. In those conversations, they sort of, you know, it revolves around, well, you know, can we pay you more? And a lot of times the answer is no, that they just don't want to take call every night. And it's not a matter of a $1,000 night stipend or 2000 or 3000 It's just that they don't want to do it. There's also been pretty good research on this, and there is sort of a decided change between kind of the older cohort of physicians and the the younger cohort of physicians, the younger cohort coming in and saying, you know, I want to have a real life, and I want to have a family life, and that means that I don't want to be working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so there is some significant kind of lifestyle issues around sort of whether or not you're going to be working all the time and always taking call. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining me to discuss the role of the surgicalist is Dr. John McConnell. So tell me, Dr. McConnell, how does the surgicalist model operate? Well, this is sort of like the hospitalist model, and surgicalists are essentially surgeons that are employed by the hospital. And so instead of collecting their reimbursement on the basis of what services they charge to the patient and how they're provided and how they're collected, the hospital takes care of that and pays the surgicalist a salary, and the surgicalist uh, works on a salary basis, and the hospital collects all the physician charges there. So the issues around call are sort of resolved as part of the physician's responsibility and salary negotiations. So he doesn't collect any fees from the patient directly. He just gets his employment from the hospital. Yes. And the hospital, do they pick up his malpractice also? In some cases, they do. I don't know sort of how widespread that is, but I think that that's sort of a common arrangement. Is this reimbursement then sufficient for most physicians who are surgeons? They're satisfied with this arrangement and the hospital satisfied also, right? Yeah, I think that there's some selection there that these are sort of physicians who are interested in doing that kind of work. And I think some of them feel like it frees them up from some of the difficulties of not being associated with a hospital and having to manage some of the billing issues and allows them just to practice. Whereas other physicians may not you know, like that arrangement or may not want to deal with emergency patients. And so they're less likely to select into that model. So let me see if I understand. The practical side of this is, say, they're on duty, they're paid by the hospital, they're called to the ED, they go down, they examine an acute abdomen, for example, decide it's an appy, they take them to the OR, and then what happens? They do the follow-up? 
they may do some follow-up. I think there's attempts to sort of coordinate with the primary care physician so that the patient is discharged. And that's sort of the hospitalist model is to sort of try to offer the follow-up. It's a good question. I don't know exactly how much of that is happening, how much of the coordination of care is happening with this. I think sort of the big paradigm shift is just that there's newfound interest in employing the surgicalist as opposed to just having them sort of be part of the medical staff. Seems like everybody wins. The patient gets seen right away. The physician has a certain frame of hours, but he's reimbursed for his services. I mean, perhaps the surgery gets done more promptly because um, that's what he's there for. Is there a downside to this at all? There may be. I mean, I think generally that people are happy with this, and it seems to be a, a model that's spreading. I think, you know, and I'm not sure if there is an immediate downside. I guess the concern that I have is sort of whether or not it's a long-term solution. And so what's happening out there and sort of what's being described by policy researchers, is there's sort of a separation, a kind of a two-way separation between hospitals and physicians. And one separation is sort of ambulatory surgery versus hospital care. And the other is sort of emergency types of care versus elective surgery. And so there's some overlap or related there. But for example, you know, orthopedics, it used to be if you were an orthopedist that most of your work, intensive work would be in the hospital. But now there's a lot of very good business that can happen in the ambulatory surgery arena. And so you can work nine to five, have a good pair mix. You know, patients love you. Your family loves you because you're around. Reimbursement is good. You can sort of capture any ancillary charges associated with the surgical center if you're part of the owner there, not just the physician charges. And that's a pretty compelling, strong, attractive model. And so the issue is whether the hospital can compete with that and still maintain costs. The hospital's got more complex patients and uninsured patients. And so, you know, this issue of emergency call, if that can be entirely solved through the surgicalist model when it's may become increasingly more attractive for some physicians to practice outside of the hospital, I think that is still has to be resolved somewhat. Now, you mentioned something to me when we talked before the show as well, the acute care surgeon. Can you tell us something about that model? Yeah, this is a model that's been proposed that is in some ways is kind of the inpatient version of the emergency physician. So emergency medicine, as your listeners probably know, is a relatively young specialty that sort of grew out of, you know, there used to be a model where physicians sort of kind of showed up at the emergency department, didn't have specialty training, but sort of learned to take care of emergency patients while their other interest was in internal medicine or primary care or something like that. What's happening with the on the inpatient side is that there is sort of this realization that a lot of the emergency patients that come in that need to be cared for, you know, they often sort of get sent to one specialist, maybe somebody with a knee problem has to go to an orthopedist, somebody with a trauma problem has to go to a trauma surgeon, somebody with a, you know, infection or wound goes to a general surgeon. Right. And so there's a lot of different specialists who are covering this sort of broad range of emergency issues. But a lot of those emergency issues might be handled better by one specialty who was trained to take care of those inpatient issues. And so they wouldn't be quite as specialized as orthopedists to do some of the, you know, a knee replacement, but they could take care of some of the emergency knee issues that an orthopedist would normally be on call for. Yeah. If I was going to go to the OR for a specific orthopedic-related emergency, maybe even if it was in the middle of the night, I think I'd want an orthopedic guy. I'm not so sure. An appy, I'd probably trust to a general surgeon. There's probably a little mixed reviews on this, no? Yeah, I think there are. Some of this, as an economist, I don't have a great history of all of the divisions between the specialists, but I think there's been some pushback by some of the specialists saying, well... That's uh, my turf. That's my that's specialty. My turf and, yeah, and that's so my ability. Yeah. That's my ability. And so they're not so sure that they like this, but you could sort of see where they're going and why it's been proposed, at least for consideration. I saw one ad, I was looking this up, and it was somewhere in the middle of Tennessee, and it said minimal trauma. So that must be part of the appeal for these guys, right? It may be part of the appeal, and I think in some ways it's dependent on the hospitals, you know, how much trauma they're seeing. I think the trauma question is sort of related to this acute care surgeon model, and part of what's happened here is that trauma care has gotten really good 
at managing patients without having to operate on them. And so part of the issue is that you've got a patient who had a blunt trauma to their abdomen, and maybe they need to be observed by a trauma surgeon, but maybe they don't really need to have surgery. And so can you take the general surgeon who doesn't need to sort of go in and do an intensive trauma surgery procedure, but needs to sort of be able to watch them in the same way that the trauma surgeon did? Is there some way to recognize the overlap there and train up the general surgeon so that they can do the observation that the trauma surgeon might have to do. And as you referred to, it's spreading. I also read about a psychiatric hospital in-house program, much like you described the surgicalist program. Maybe everybody will get benefits because they're receiving care from experienced staff who wants to be there. Yeah, I think, you know, people selecting into this are people who really like to do this. And I think what I was seeing sort of looking at kind of the letters from physician recruiting agencies was that the most requested specialty or type of care was this sort of surgicalist type of person that they were recruiting. And we've seen the hospitalist movement, that's really increased a lot. I think the sort of census on hospitalists in, say, about 10 years ago, was there, there were maybe 1,000, suggested maybe between 10 to 20,000 today, and say maybe 30,000 in total in another few years. So the hospitalist model has really grown, and I think we'll probably see the same thing in the surgicalist movement. Any advice for any general surgeons out there listening to this show who might be thinking, you know, damn, this is for me. You know, I can do what I want. I can cut. I can go to the OR. I can take care of patients and still have a reasonable lifestyle and go home. Yeah, I think it depends on, you know, you probably have a good idea of what the hospital life is like and what that means and sort of your interest in sort of being more associated with hospital care and emergency care. If that's sort of your leaning, I think it's worth exploring. And are you doing it in Oregon? So there's been sort of an interesting history in Oregon. So what we've seen here in Oregon was that the call issues sort of came up and the first response was to pay stipends so that physicians, surgeons would carry a beeper. They get paid $1,000 a night to carry a beeper and then get called in for things. And then there was sort of a shift away from that model to sort of this guaranteed pay model, which was you no longer got paid to carry a beeper, but if you came in, you were guaranteed at least a Medicare rate if you saw a patient and they were uninsured because hospitals, I think, initially felt like they weren't getting the good end of the deal just by paying physicians sometimes when they wouldn't show up. And then what we've seen is a sort of a movement even further into this employment model. And some hospitals are sort of changing the way that they kind of offer care. And so instead of just emergency care and the inpatient orthopedic group, they are now saying this is a fracture service, that they're sort of redesigning things so that they are employing some surgeons there, some orthopedists to take care of people with fractures. And this is sort of their new type of service line there. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. John McConnell, for joining us to discuss The Surgicalist, a new concept in delivering on-call care. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit www.reachmd.com. And thank you, as always, for listening.